If you'd like to turn to two kings, uh, it's in the, you know, the two-thirds of the Bible we never read, the Old Testament. No, of course, I know you do read that. Uh, so, 2 Kings chapter 4, and I'm going to read a few verses, 1 to 7. But while you're doing that, I um, just want to bring my own greetings from uh, City Church in Bristol, just to say hi. I know you've had one or two come, I think, and speak. Just is it two people? I think yeah, it's simple, isn't it? So most recently, I think it's Tom, Tom Wilson, who's a good friend of ours, just a, a great guy, love him very much. Someone who's really seeking God for his future and wondering what God has for him. I hope you enjoyed having him with you. Probably wasn't that long ago, was it? Well, a month ago or so? Yeah, probably was, wasn't it? So, yeah, but also greetings to the rest of us. We're a church that uh, has been in the city for about 20, ooh, 25, 26 years, something like that, I think. And just to say that we, um, when we, we celebrated, I think it was the 20th anniversary of a little while ago, and we did a whole video, we managed to gather footage, you know, like you do sometimes, get people, send in your photos, send in your video. And there was a picture of a room pretty much like this. It actually, it was an upper room in a pub. Um, and it was uh, just a few people like this. And there was the beginnings of City Church. Uh, I just wanted to say that to encourage you because uh, not that many years later, we are now three sites, three different congregations of the same church around the city. And, um, and God has added to our numbers and we're looking to plant more sites and to plant churches in other cities. And by the God's grace, we've been able to plant a number of churches from our church over the years, some a little bit by accident sometimes, <laughs> and sometimes a bit more intentionally. Um, but God has used us to do that. And that's very much part of who we believe that we are God will put things in the heart of a church something that you feel like I, I, I hesitate to say a burden so we have enough burdens don't we? Don't, we don't want another burden really but something that you're passionate for something that you can't get away from sometimes and you realize oh this is part of who we are this is the flavor of our church this is the, something that God's given us this is the kind of children we have maybe um, if you notice that you have a particular kind of children you probably do if you've got them um, and that's I'm sure God will do things like that for you as well. So that's who we are. That's where we're from. We live in the north of, of Bristol, so quite near to the M4, which we sort of have in common, I guess, uh, with you guys. And we regularly travel past Swindon to get to other places and back to Bristol and things like that. So anyway, so yes, we've been there for about seven, eight years. We led a church in Devon for about 10 years before that. And then we were in London uh, with uh, some of you guys were there too. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, Eddie and Brenda were there. So we were in London. And then before that, oh no, between that, we were in, uh, no, half before that, before that, we were in Cape Town in South Africa. And then before that, we were in Brighton. Uh, so we, the first job that I had in a church was working for what then was called CCK, which is now Emmanuel Church. And we met in Brighton doing a teaching degree doing teaching degrees uh, so we were just thinking about that because we met actually we actually met in a drama studio in in the uh, in the university I think that's probably where we first met or at least at the early days of our relationship um, yeah so here we are um, so I want to talk to you today about grace there are two, there's been two uh, there have been many significant moments in my walking with Jesus but two very significant moments um, just to start with, one was being filled with the Holy Spirit. When I was about 11 years old, I went to a cessationist Christian camp. We were all off to Commission Festival 
Which is, that's what it's called now, isn't it? Yeah, it's definitely called that. Uh, Commission Festival has had a few iterations of names, um, but yes, Commission Festival. Um, back in the day, back in the 80s, I suppose, maybe even earlier, uh, there were lots of those things, but much smaller. And I used to go to one of those, and it was a cessationist one. You know what a cessationist thing is, where essentially people don't believe in the power and work of the Holy Spirit, other than, of course, for salvation. Uh, and so that was the kind of thing I went to. And I was filled with the Holy Spirit there, which was a bit of a shock to everyone, uh, and, and, and to me as well, and to the few friends that we were also with. And that changed everything for me. Just Someone said that being filled with the Holy Spirit as a believer, uh, which is how it works, is, is a bit like rewiring a house whilst you leave the electricity on. It would, uh, it would be, be an interesting experience, wouldn't it? And I felt a bit like that for me. It was like, oh my goodness, there's power here. <laughs> and you notice that if you rewire without switching off the mains, don't you? There's power here, oh my goodness. And the second uh, significant moment of many significant moments, the ones that really stand out is when I understood the grace of God for the first time. And I would say, I, I couldn't tell you which was more significant um, and I think to understand the, uh, to begin to understand grace, to understand what that means for us, what it means for my relationship with God, with myself, with my, with my family, with my children, with those around me, and with the world that God has made is of such significance. Uh, it's also the thing, you know, obviously um, the power and work of the Holy Spirit is something that's often contested but the work of grace, maybe even more so through history, has been contested. That is it, is grace, is it real? Can we trust this gospel of grace or do we have to add something else into it? Um, it was uh, Dwight Moody, the, the leader or the guy that started, I think, the Salvation Army, wasn't it? And he said this, he said, grace is the key that unlocks the New Testament. In other words, if you want to get what is the, the, the meta-narrative, that's a fancy word for the story behind the story, in fact, of the whole Bible, we have to have a grasp of what grace is. And it's so easy, and I know this too, because we never really get grace. <laughs> we can begin to understand it, and then we understand more of its depths. You ever climbed a mountain or a hill, and you've got to a certain point, and you're thinking, oh, that's the, we, once we get there, that must be the top, and you get there, and you realize, oh, there's more. There's more of this to go, and that's a bit like understanding God's grace, is that we, we, we kind of achieve a certain level of, of understanding, and then, we, and then all it does is shows us there's more to come. There are more hallelujah. depths and breadths to it. Yes, absolutely, hallelujah. That's exactly the right response. So what I want to do is look at this passage in the Old Testament um, and, and then draw some principles to hopefully help us to understand a bit more about the grace of God. Anyway, let's, uh, I'm sure you've found it by now. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 4, the first seven verses. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that he revered the Lord, but now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, go and ask your neighbours for empty jars. Don't just ask for a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars 
and as each is filled, put it to one side. Then she left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring another one. But he replied, there's not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is powerful and active. Thank you that it works in our lives and minds and experiences. Thank you that it works on our spirits. And we pray, Holy Spirit, come and own your word in our experience. Come and grow us. Come and stretch our understanding, Lord Jesus. We want to know you more. We want to enjoy your grace and enjoy your gospel and enjoy the truth of who you are. Help us, Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. 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 So this story is part of that big narrative of the big story. And that's the great thing about the Bible. The Bible is a, a cohesive story, which is in itself surprising. It's 66 books, but there is a clear narrative structure to it, which is a remarkable thing. We don't often think about that. But the fact that these 66 different books that are many, many different writers, dozens of writers, I guess, across the whole of the thing, Follow a narrative is, is remarkable. And the fact it was written over an, a, a thousands of years, or, or at least some thousands of years, that the whole thing holds together as one is remarkable. And this is part of that story telling the big story. Um, and the story of grace, which is actually a story which is hinted at in all our experiences, is, is hinted at in a daylight today, in a beautiful, glorious day. It's hinted at with every new dawn, with every baby born, with every spring that comes around. This story of grace is retold and retold and retold. And with every surprising act of self-sacrifice and with every story that makes its way onto our news channels that tells something of this, that story, this story is retold to us and some would say that this story of grace is so remarkable that it and so kind of counterintuitive to what we would think that it must have come their conclusion is this story must have come from a different world this story can't have just been born out of the mind of a human it has to have come from somewhere else because this is not what you would expect. And that, of course, is what the Bible tells us. It tells us that that's where this story comes from. We have in our possession a gospel that is astounding and surprising and, and in, in many ways alarming and disarming, but immensely powerful and unusual. And I want us to understand maybe a little bit more of it today and the old testament too is full of grace of course it is uh, sometimes you have to look a bit further with because the because the, the the stories of the old testament often take a bit longer you have to read a bit more sometimes before you find the grace in it but it's there it's there shot through start to finish and it it's there to tell us uh, what is coming and the remarkable thing about the Old Testament is it's what the theologians tell us is a foreshadow of what's to come. It's like a shadow before the event, because the event of the Bible, of course, is Jesus coming. But it tells us that that's coming. It reminds us that when Jesus appears, that somehow we recognize him. It's as if, oh, I knew, I, I see, I see, because I remember these stories. And this is one of those stories. 
And what obviously happens eventually is this, this outrageous reality that God comes himself. God comes himself to rescue us, to win us, to love us, to show us how it could be, to show us how it will be. And that's this story too. And of course, this story, story tells us something of that story and something of our story too. Now, but we do have a problem with grace and the world has a very serious problem with grace. Maybe I think John McCarthy says that this is the most hated doctrine in all Christendom. The world hates grace. It hates it because it's so disarming. It is so disarming. It, it, doesn't, it, it leaves you nowhere to hide. It means you have to humble yourself before a mighty God yes. in order to receive it. And we'll look at that in some detail. And what we find actually, a bit like the fevered patient, confused um, and uh, dist uh, with a distorted mind, refusing the medicine that would relieve the fever, we could be a bit like that with grace. And we could be like that with grace as Christians too. We could be like, no, I, uh, and it's, it happens to us subtly. And sometimes we slip away from grace back into a more kind of transactional agreement with God. And sometimes I think it's a bit like this. We, we hear the gospel and we respond to it. And then, and then we sort of, what we withdraw to is something a bit like this. Rather than I'm coming to God humbly recognizing that he has done everything, that I have, I have done nothing. A bit like John was saying just now. And we, we come to this. We come to a sort of negotiated settlement with God. And in other words, we think we sort of say to God, well, you know, I'll change this about my life, this little bit here, and you do this for me. And, and so we negotiate our way into this relationship. That's not how it is. <laughs> but that's so often how we, how, it, how, it, how we feel it is, how it becomes in our life. I know that's true because I know that's in my heart too. And we have to battle that constantly. And this story also helps us with that. But it is hardwired into our thinking for instance, that actions have consequences, that work has wages, that, uh, that, that performance and reward go together. That's how we think and how we work. That's how our world works, how schools work, how education works. It's how capitalism works, it's how everything works. It's not how God works. <laughs> it's very, but because it's so hardwired into us, when we come up upon this gospel of grace, we can just reject it or at least think maybe, you know, maybe this isn't quite all it seems to be. You see, we have phrases in our, in our culture that we are so used to that we barely even think about them anymore. And these phrases are, are kind of proof positive that these, this way of looking at the world, which is anti-grace, is how it should be. So we would have phrases like this. One good deed deserves another. Who's said that? I mean, we've probably all said that. One good deed deserves another. That's, that's, good. that's a good solid phrase, isn't it? Something we might agree with. Or, or she'll get her just desserts. Heard that? Or he will, certainly. Or you'll get what's coming to you. Heard that one, haven't you? Or this idea of karma. Have you heard that? It's uh, this strange idea that somehow the universe pays you back good for good and evil for evil. It, and the, the subject of many hours of YouTube videos, if anyone's interested. Um, I, I remember a teacher at a secondary school, not unlike this one, saying to me, you get nothing for free in this world with such vim and vigor that I've remembered it all these years. You get nothing for free in this world. And uh, totally convinced that's how the world works. Or, or you get what you pay for. 
would be something else we would hear, wouldn't we? And maybe the most subtle and pernicious of them all is this one. Love is give and take. Heard that one? It isn't, but you hear it a lot, don't you? <laughs> love, love isn't give and take, by the way. <laughs> love can only be give and receive. You can't take love. You can't take it from anyone. It can only be received. Um, anyway, so those things are so deeply hardwired into our lives, into our psyche, into the culture around us, that we barely pay attention to that way of thinking. And of course, that then infiltrates all of our relationships and our thinking. It infiltrates, as I've said, education and business and, and friendships and love and sometimes even faith. And that's where we have our real problem, the real <coughs> challenge for Grace Lands there. You see, I remember when I was a, probably a teenager, late, in my late teens, we, I did a couple of years uh, working for a church and we spent a lot of time uh, with going onto the streets and just talking to people, asking them what they thought about God or what they thought about Jesus. And one of the questions was kind of, well, how would you, how, how would you talk to God or what would you say to God if you met him right now? And almost to a man and a woman, every answer was something like this, well, I think I've done enough good. I think on the sort of cosmic scales of justice, the things I've done good will outweigh the things I haven't done. So hopefully, somehow, God will balance these things up and I'll be fine. And that was almost universally what people thought about how it worked. Again, a negotiated settlement. You know, please, oh, look, that wasn't so good, but this was a bit better. And I did this thing or I gave this or I did that. And of course, that's also not what grace is. You see, God doesn't deal with us in this way. Um, so it's not, uh, it, it's not a, a negotiated settlement. It's an all-out submitting to his goodness <coughs> and grace. And in the place of earned reward or just deserts, grace stands outstretched with the outstretched arms ready to welcome, welcome us. Well, let's look at this story then and see where it takes us. Elisha was a prophet. And a prophet, of course, was someone particularly devoted and gifted uh, at hearing from God. And then often in, those case, in these cases, bringing the results of that to the people. He lived about 900 BC, so a long time before Jesus. And yet the, 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 Elijah, the Elijah and Elisha story, and Elijah was his kind of boss. Elisha was his protege, as it were. Uh, these, these stories of Elijah and Elisha reflect so much, again, they foreshadow so much of Jesus' ministry. And, and even here in, in, in this passage and around this passage are many stories of, of remarkable miracles that these men did in the name of God. And anyway, for long, for long periods uh, of Israel's history, they were led by a combination of kings and priests and prophets. And... and uh, and they would bring God's word to the nation and the nation would take on a direction uh, one way or another, speaking from God and on behalf of God. Um, they were sometimes very unpopular, like in Jeremiah's. <laughs> Jeremiah was a young man who kept telling people all the good things that all these other guys are telling you aren't going to happen. And we're in trouble. And they put him in a hole in the ground for his trouble. Bless his heart. But anyway, the <laughs> Elijah and Elisha were powerful men of God. And their ministry was powerful too. And Elisha, um, what's Elijah? If you remember the story, Elijah was taken up into heaven. He didn't die. He, was, he went off on a chariot of fire. Remember that one? Um, and Elisha was left. Elisha would ask for a double portion 
of Elijah's uh, anointing. Um, and Elisha led a company of prophets, so a whole group of, of guys, I guess, who got together and prophesied. Uh, we, we, we have a group in our church who do that. Uh, they're a bit terrifying, but it's fun to have them around. <laughs> and, uh, and they keep sending me long emails about things God is saying, and I'm like, oh my goodness. Uh, but it's good fun to have them. And, uh, and this is a bit like that, I guess. Elisha led this company of prophets, and he's visiting one of them, and he's died. And he gets to the house, and the first thing he hears there in verse 1 is, the husband of this dear lady is dead. All is lost. And that's where our story starts. All is lost. Everything is gone. And to lose a beloved husband would be tragic at any age. But in this culture, at this time in history, to lose a a husband was to lose everything was to lose your connection to, to the history of the family, was to lose all prospects of earning wealth, passing it on to the family. All the inheritance structures would have broken down at this point. And we see that also in as much as the, 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 the widow is saying the creditors at the door already. It's just happened, but already we are in trouble. So church, what would you do at this point? So someone comes in, uh, and we find out that the husband has just died and they're in real financial trouble, what would you do? <coughs> what would you do? Well, you would pray, I'm sure you would, but you, but that, you might actually do something else. Well, I came to a few, what would I do? I think we would, what would we do? In, I, I think we probably, and we even have a fund in City Church for this kind of thing, I think we would think about trying to pay the debt. Mm-hmm. Could we pay it? Is it possible? Maybe in this day and age, it would be a bit frightening, but maybe then it wouldn't have been so bad. We thought, well, would we pay the debt? I think we would think about it, certainly, and we would certainly pray about it. Um, Or maybe, if any of you are more lawyers, lawyer-like, maybe we would negotiate with the creditors. Or we would send Eddie round to see them, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) We'd go and talk to the creditors. Maybe you'd do that. That's all changed. Has it really? Okay, so you'd uh, negotiate a deal maybe with the creditors, maybe a combination of those two things, or this is what I thought, maybe we'd just help her run away. <laughs> I mean, what would you actually do? I mean, it's, it's a good question, isn't it? What would you really, what would you do? How would you, how would you cope with that as a community? What would you do? Because people like this are everywhere. <laughs> there really are people whose lives are like, oh my goodness, not like, my life, which is relatively secure, I suppose, financially anyway, in all sorts of other ways. But some people's lives really aren't. And this dear lady has lost everything. All is lost. It's gone. All her hope for the future. These boys are going to be slaves before you know it. That's how they would pay their debts in those days. That's how it worked. That's, that was the history, actually, of slavery pretty much, is that actually you, well, you've got nothing left where you've got yourself. So that's what you have to now sell. That's how it worked. But Elisha doesn't do any of those things. And, uh, and I think it's remarkable what he actually does. Elisha gives his very best to her. And what is that very best? Well, that very best is this. He invites her into his faith. This is what he does. <laughs> he shares his faith in God with her, which is what he actually does. He includes her and the boys in the working of a miracle. He doesn't just do it for her, which is, I think, what most of my answers were like, I'll do something for you. I'll fix it for you. 
maybe that's maybe that's a male answer. Can I even say such a thing? But that maybe is that kind of thing. I can fix it. But he doesn't do that. He invites her into his faith in the working of a miracle and used, uses the little that she has and multiplies it to pay a debt and feeds the family. As I said, notice he doesn't just do it on her behalf, but he invites her to an adventure of faith, a story that would be told and is being told 3,000 plus years later. That's quite a remarkable thing <laughs> that we would even be talking about it today. And you'll notice maybe even in this story, the obvious parallels I've mentioned already with, with Jesus of feeding the 4,000 or the 5,000, the multiple times he seemed to do that kind of thing. You remember that story where the little boy comes to Jesus with the little he has and, and then the disciples multiply it and everyone gets more than enough to eat. And it was G.K. Chesterton who said this, that God wants us to have grown-up heads and childlike hearts. Amen. And that's the way around it should be. <laughs> that our hearts to do God's will are full of wonder and expectation. And, but we don't bypass the intellect that God has given us. And the one has to serve the other in that way. The second thing we notice this is that the woman answers Elisha and says this, your servant has nothing. We see that there in verse 2. She, she says, I've got nothing. There's nothing. This woman's confession is a huge pointer for us in our exploration of grace. This has to be the starting point if we want to receive grace. She says, I've got nothing. I don't have anything. All the while I think I can fix it or work harder or behave more holy or worship more sincerely, all I'm doing is building a wall of self-reliance with God. That's all I'm doing. And ultimately that is deep inside pride. That's what that really is. And grace to that person, to that mindset, remains a concept on a page rather than a miracle received. So she had to admit, I have nothing. If she was to say, no, I'll, I'll be fine, it'll all be fine, and Elisha walks away and nothing happens, no miracle, nothing. But she admits, I have nothing. I've got nothing at all. Matthew 19, Jesus says this, verse 23, Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And we see this again with regards to money, don't we? It wasn't, it wasn't the richness, it wasn't the money that was the problem for this person that Jesus is talking about, or this kind of person. That's not the issue, because we, we know that God loves wealthy people as well. But the problem is this. That receiving grace is hard for people who are confident in themselves. Like, I don't, I, I, look what I've done. I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made woman. Look how I've achieved so much. Come and see all the things I've achieved. That self-reliance just holds God at arm's length. And says, no, I'm fine, thank you. I don't need your help. And it's a misreading of reality. And it's a misreading of the gospel. And it's a misreading of who God is. Because we might think, now I can sort this out, says the rich man. I can sort it out. Look at what I've built. Look at the life I've built for myself. I can sort things out. I can fix things. I don't need your help. Thank you very much. Humility can be a very hard lesson, but it's essential when receiving 
and understand the grace of God. Jesus starts the most famous sermon in all history, the Sermon on the Mount, with what? He says this, Blessed are the what? The poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the start point. That's the, that's the open door into God's kingdom is what? Poor in spirit. Which is why often people will say this, and you've probably heard this, that the gospel is shaped for the poor, the actual poor people. It's shaped, why? Because they don't have any pretense. They don't have a financial pretense. They don't have a big pension fund or a house to sell. They don't have, they've got, they, they know they need help. And they're happy to say, yes, I need help. I've got nothing. Like this lady did. The doors to God's gracious, um, hope-filled kingdom are open to the poor in the spirit. They open wide to them. Probably should be reflected in how we preach the gospel and who we expect maybe to be the recipients of the gospel. To those who have carefully reflected and consider like this widow, I have nothing. I just don't have anything. I've got nothing. I need help. James, Jesus' own brother, says this. Uh, James 4 verse 5 says this. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? Which is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. And that's, again, part of that foundational truth that understanding of the gospel listen brothers and sisters that's true for our access into god's kingdom it's true for us as believers who are a bit long in the tooth as well we still come to god as needing his grace it's not you don't grow out of it which is why i said before you know we can come to this well i've negotiated things with god but no we don't we have to come humbly every time and Lord, I need you. I don't have anything of my own to bring. Verse 5, the next thing that we find is this. The, oh, is that right? Yes. The oil kept flowing. Do you notice that? Everything that she could find was filled. And what do we learn? We learn that grace is what? Grace is extravagant. It's extravagant. When we think of God's love and provision what we think of is this we think of our own generation generosity maybe and we add a bit that's sort of how we think god what we often think god is like on a good day i feel quite generous maybe god's a bit like that well maybe he's probably a bit better than that you know but that's probably what he's like he's like a you know he's like a a wealthy grandparent who, you know, who might just, you know, give some, uh, some gifts to the children. Well, we, we used to live in, in South Africa and we had uh, two children at the time. And when, we, when we'd come back occasionally for holidays, we'd come back for Christmas sometimes. And uh, my parents were, went a bit over the top. As, uh, I remember once arriving and you know, South Africa is relatively a poorer country. And we would come back and the pile of presents for the children was a bit embarrassing. Do you remember? It was a bit like, oh my goodness. That's... <laughs> Like, this is a bit much. Um, but God's grace is extravagant. It is extravagant. It is, out, it is outrageous. It's outrageous. It's a scandal, brothers and sisters. Grace is absolutely scandalous. And, and until we kind of grasp the fact 
that it is outrageous and scandalous, we haven't quite got it yet. <laughs> it's a scandal that you, brother and sister, are in God's kingdom. It's a scandal that I'm in his kingdom. It's not what you would expect. It's certainly not what I deserve. It's definitely not. I, I have, oh my goodness, I've gone away with it. Well, I did, but Jesus didn't, of course. But my goodness, can it be true? Can it possibly be true? I get to be favoured of God. I get an inheritance. I get to be, I, I'm, a, I'm a child of the king. It's a scandal. It is incredibly extravagant. extravagant. One, 1 John 3 says this, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. You didn't negotiate your way into his family. You, didn't, you weren't smart enough or wealthy enough to come up with some deal that meant you got in. No, he chose you. You didn't deserve to be chosen. I didn't deserve to be. Oh my goodness, I didn't deserve. I don't deserve. I deserve nothing. And yet I get to be chosen. It's outrageous behavior. It's incredible. This is, this is the God that shapes the cosmos, brothers and sisters. This is the driving force behind the galaxies, the stars, everything that you see. This is the power. It's the power. It's grace. Yeah. This is it. This is why our story is such a wonderful story to tell. Yes. A story of negotiated arrangements with a higher power is no story at all. It's a story that everyone tells all the time. Something breaks and you take it back to the shop and you negotiate with them, you go, trying to work it out. There's all the stories forever. This is not like any of those stories. Yeah. It is an otherworldly story. Yeah. It's a beautiful, wonderful story. What kind of love calls rebels and enemies sons and heirs? Amen. What kind of love is that? It's incredible. This kingdom is incredibly radical. It's such a different shape than we might expect. What kind of love steps in and accepts my richly deserved punishment? What kind of love does that? I don't really know any love like that, except for his. Accepting the full punishment for my sin for my wrongness, for all that I had done, everything that I was and thought, it gets washed away by God himself. What a story. What a story. And the next thing we see in this particular story is that Elisha says to the, to the woman, well, what have you got? What have you got in the house? And you might say to me, well, hang on a second. I thought you said that she had nothing. So isn't this just a contradiction of that? Well, it could be, but it isn't. <laughs> it's not the opposite. Because once we've humbly accepted that all the good gifts 
that God gives us from God. Once we've established that, once we're on that firm ground, that foundational truth, and we're standing there and enjoying that, and when we worship, that's where our minds go. And when we study God's word, we're looking for this grace story everywhere. Once we see that and we know that and we believe that, what we find is this, that God is willing to redeem some of the things that he's given us for his glory. Once it's established that it is not me asserting my cleverness, once that's all true, now it's for him. And so everything is now for him. And so yes, the, th- the little I have now can be given back in gracious worship, really, to him. And so that's what we find happens in this story. And she says, well, I've got a little bit of oil in a jar. That's, that's what I've got. That's all we have left in the house. And Elisha's like, let's see what God will do. And you see how he's giving her the best. He's inviting her into an adventure of faith. You see, sometimes we can, we can, we, we can be a bit coy. We can, no, no, I have, I have nothing. So that's how she starts. But we can be, as Christians, and we get this quite a lot, no, 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 please don't use me. I, I have nothing to offer. And what we find, again, is pride lurking underneath the guise of self-pity. And that's, I have to put my hand up to that. I really have to, I struggle over the years of self-pity. No, don't, no, 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 please don't, please don't look at me. And all what we, all we find is lurking underneath a facade of humility is just, please someone see, please someone see how good I am really. It's lurking under there, isn't it? Ah, you can, you see it in yourselves, don't you? Because I see it in myself too. But actually when it's like, no, that's, none of that matters. Why? Because I am enthralled with this lavish grace. And so I'm going to offer back to him anything I might find in the cupboard. <laughs> Any small bit of olive oil I might find, I'm going to give back to him. And so, so Elisha invites the widow into his own faith. And then as the story draws to a conclusion, what we find again is this lavish story of grace just keeps on being more outrageous because well they just gather all these i'd love to have seen it wouldn't you just just get all the jars imagine knocking on your neighbors have you got some buckets i need more i need everything you've got in the kitchen and then you how many how far do you go how many neighbors do you knock on the door of i need something's about to happen what are you doing you've got a leak in the house you know you like what is going on well no uh the the prophet came and we're doing a miracle and i mean what do you say at that point anyway so they get all these jars and it just keeps on being filled and so she starts with a with all is lost and here of course she gets to pay the debts but if you notice what else elisha says now go and live on what's left there was so much left over after the debts were paid that the loss of the husband, tragic as it was, was really wiped out. You can now live on what is left. There's, there's so much left beyond that. There's so much left, so much extra. God has been so gracious. You know, sometimes we don't... We, we, when I said before about how we think God is our level of generous with a bit added... We stop looking for these moments. Sometimes it's relational, could be like that. Sometimes it's just in terms of who we are together. And it, God is so gracious. Just with your community here, He's given you so much. 
So much that people that your neighbours don't know about, probably. People in the school, the people playing football out there, they have no idea, no idea that they could be mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters who would love each other, who would deeply care for one another, who would share their lives and their failings and their wonderings about God with each other and looking towards God for salvation. So we see God's lavish heart on display, God's grace again. And so the generations of her family the family line was protected. And that's really where we started. The tragedy was that the husband, with the husband came the inheritance structure, came the family line, and that was going to be lost into slavery, and it was rescued. And God provided all of that. So let's just conclude. Humility opens the door to grace. Nothing else really does. The poor in spirit receive the kingdom of God. We need to examine our hearts. As a church, we need to examine ourselves too. A church which exudes this kind of wonder at God's grace is an attractive proposition for people. Because you don't find this anywhere else. But we have to work at it together. A church which expects God's grace. Are we expectant? Are we, on the front? Are we looking and expecting his grace? Or are we actually thinking, well, I don't think he's very happy with us? He's, he's thrilled. Why? Because it's Jesus he sees. He's thrilled with us. And something that's in our heart, I know as, as a church and in our hearts as church leaders is this, that we would be just overwhelmingly, the word we use is magnanimous, which just means big-hearted towards everyone. Anyone who comes, just big-hearted. Why? Because he's been big-hearted towards me. All I want to do is reflect something of who he is, something of the wonders of God, so that Trinity Life Church would be a church that just exudes God's grace, God's heart for this, this great town, this great place, this great city, and beyond. Who knows when the 25th anniversary of this church comes around and someone says, have you got any videos of the early days? And someone puts up a video and there it is and you're looking out at the crowds and all the young people and the students and all the rest of it and the people that have gone from here and the churches that have been planted from here and there you are thinking, oh look, I'm in that picture. We're all a bit older by the way when that happens. <laughs> look back and think how young we all were. Because why? We understood and embraced God's grace. Should we pray? Father, I thank you for this incredible story of God's grace and favour. I thank you that your goodness, Lord Jesus, is expressed in this unmerited favour, in this outrageous gift of sons and daughters and heirs, of being included in this story that we inherit everything. Wow! The whole cosmos remade in your image, Lord Jesus. And that's ours for eternity to enjoy. The wonders of Jesus told in every, in, in every moment, in every corner of every planet of the whole cosmos. The story of Jesus being told for all eternity. And Father, we want to tell that story now. 
We want to tell it well. We want to tell it with energy and vigor. We want to tell it with passion and love. We want to tell it in the way we live together and how we worship and how we share our lives together and how we, uh, how we open up with each other and how we love those around us and how we love the unlovely, Lord Jesus, and how we love our enemies, Lord Jesus. I pray, let us tell that story with all we have, with every breath, until we meet you. In the name of Jesus. Amen.